My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Eli Morgan Gessner is a born and bred New Yorker who fell in love with graffiti, skateboarding, and hip-hop and never looked back. One of the founders of Zoo York, Eli, along with Rodney Smith and Adam Schatz, established the first major East Coast skateboard company that incorporated graffiti and hip-hop culture into their designs. As New York's graphic designer and creative catalyst, Eli was at the center of its visual identity as it became a global brand before falling victim to corporate greed. A new documentary, All the Streets Are Silent, The Convergence of Hip-Hop and Skateboarding, 1987 to 1997, by Jeremy Elkin, tells part of the story. For the rest, we've got Eli to fill in the blanks and provide some all-important context. Welcome, Eli. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we had a chance to catch up here. I'd like to know, why was it such a big deal to incorporate graffiti and hip-hop culture into a skateboarding company, Zoo York, back in the day? The way that you presented the question makes it seem like there was some sort of acknowledgement that there was something uh, wrong in skateboarding, but it wasn't really even like that. When I got into skateboarding, I kind of got into it because graffiti was becoming a little bit too dangerous and they started cleaning the trains and you could kind of sense that the 80s pop explosion and the great golden era was fading away. I was kind of hanging out or more so like annoying <laughs> these graffiti kings in my neighborhood who were the TC5 crew, most famously Doe's and Doc and Beam and Webb. And they were older than me. They seemed like grown-ups, but they were probably in their early 20s or teenagers. And I was trying to insert myself as their apprentice because I really loved them as artists. But once I became accepted by them and they like knew who I was, uh, they were immediately just like, graffiti's dead. 1985, TC5, end of graffiti. <laughs> and I was crushed. What are you talking about? This is what I want to do with my life. They were just saying, from their point of view, starting writing graffiti in the 70s, you could just take the train up to a yard. There were no fences. You walk right in with your paint and some beer and your friends, do some pieces. By the time I was getting into it, the city had put up double chain link fences with German shepherds and barbed wire, and there were gangs and guns, and people were getting shot at. And, and then everyone knew they were bringing in the stainless steel trains. And in New York, especially at that time, the the pinnacle of it was to get on the trains. And if the trains weren't part of the game plan any longer, then people were going to tap out, at least at that moment. Obviously, nowadays, it's turned into something quite different. So I was a bit crushed, you know, like, oh, man, I'm going to have to just give up on my graffiti dreams. Although a lot of other of my contemporaries, most notably Reese, Todd James, and that crew of uh, the AOK writers and tons, Chino, they just kept writing as if like it didn't matter because that was their thing. 
I had my one in into graffiti with the TC5 guys, but I was just an annoying little kid. So I would go writing by myself on the streets or go to train yards. It just was way too dangerous. The city was overtly prosecuting for and hunting people down. And uh, the point is, (laughs) skateboarding appeared. Skateboarding seemed like a safe alternative in a way. It was a safer (laughs) alternative. And on top of that, I was, besides being an artist, I was always like a, a lunatic kid. I was always in Central Park and Riverside Park and climbing up the monument and swinging on ropes that were being hung and jumping off of things. So I always had that uh, frenetic kind of energy that didn't really translate so good to graffiti. Even today, I have graffiti friends who are super famous and have never been arrested, never been caught. I was talking to one of them who I'm not going to mention his name recently. And I was like, how is that possible? Like my graffiti career was so small in the eighties and I must've been arrested like four or five times. And I think looking back, I just was just too much of a a spaz. Like I was just running around and had too much bottled up energy. Uh, When I talked to this gentleman, who's a very good friend of mine, he basically was like, since day one, it's always been a very methodical kind of, military endeavor to go write graffiti, to plot out areas, keep lookouts, you know, thereby not getting arrested. What about like skateboarding though? So so skateboarding, it was a big deal because you had incorporated graffiti and hip hop as part of your aesthetic, whereas the alternative was what? What were other Well, the alternative was California. So even when I started skateboarding and I got into it, I knew that I was doing an outside of New York thing. It was uh, an exotic import is what me and my friends were doing. It was so foreign skateboarding in the 80s back then. I vividly remembered skating to Washington Square Park and, you know, businessmen or guys sweeping up in front of the shops. We weren't even doing anything. We were just skating to get to Washington Square Park and people would stop and watch you go by. Like, whoa, that's so weird, you know? So it was this weird place that me and a lot of my contemporaries, like Ali Asha, Jabril Owerka-Moore, who I ended up starting a Fat Farm with, and also Paul Middleman, he was skating with us too. We all later on start Fat Farm. But in this one moment, we're like, oh, you skateboard and you write graffiti? And we just sort of all kind of coalesced and came together in this small group of New York City skateboarders. At the time, in the mid-80s, there was probably only about 30 of us. And I would say within that group of skaters, about half of them were active graffiti writers. Ian Fromm, who was probably the best skateboarder in New York City at the time, he wrote Thor for IBM, and he's in the Bones Brigade video. We just thought it was a colloquial New York hybrid. You're skateboarding, you're a juvenile delinquent, you're writing graffiti, welcome to the club. You know, that was it. And in LA, you know, it's sunny, it's, it doesn't rain or, or snow, it's yeah. not the streets. People aren't like usually skating in the streets. It's a very different aesthetic graphically as well. And it's also true. musically. It, it, it's, of course. And I was, I got to tell you, like, besides all the other things that I might be perceived as of accomplishing in my life, the one thing that 
I really cherish is how fortunate I was to be between New York and Los Angeles before modern American subcultures got homogenized. You know, there was a clear differentiation between the East Coast and the West Coast, obviously Biggie Smalls and Tupac. But, you know, in New York, we had hip hop and graffiti. And then in Los Angeles, they had like gang culture and car hot rod culture. And you could tell even in New York in the 80s, if a visiting skater from Los Angeles or San Francisco came into Washington Square Park, we knew it the second we saw them because their clothing was different. The attitude was different. And when I would go to Los Angeles, people instantly didn't know what I was. They were like, well, who is this kid? You know, And I think that was a really, really beautiful thing. And one of the observations I've made from like the specifically the late 80s into the 90s, even into the early 2000s, if I went to a club or a restaurant or some kind of scene in New York, I knew I was in New York. And if I went to it in LA, I knew I was in LA. And then I think because of in the early 2000s, because airfare got cheaper, the internet came out, American apparel happened. And then suddenly I would start seeing the exact same thing happening on both coasts and the exoticness of bouncing back and forth and taking these two different worlds together started collapsing. If you went to a club in Los Angeles in 1995, you got a way different mix of dancing, different types of ways girls dressed, the way the guys dressed, the way the music was. And then you'd go to New York and it would be completely different. Now I go to New York. It's the same thing. I go to LA. It's the same thing. Let's say globalization. It's the mollification. It's gentrification. A lot of shit's happened over these years. I've seen all the streets are silent and I think it Uh captures a great decade in youth culture history. We're talking New York in the late 80s and early 90s. Why begin in 87 and end in 97? What is it about (laughs) those years? (laughs) First, I would like to state that it's not my movie. (laughs) Right. This all began because I met Jeremy Elkin a few years back, and he asked me because of the Zoo York tag, my graffiti hand style has its own little, you know, whatever, people are attracted to it. So I frequently get asked to go and do tags or write things for different projects for friends of mine or I get paid for it. So Jeremy, I didn't know him. Some of my skaters for shut skateboards were in a video he made and they introduced me and Jeremy asked me to do all the credits and write everybody's name in my handwriting. So that's how I met Jeremy. And then we ended up living close together. So I would run into him And I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but he kind of told me he was trying to make a documentary about New York in the 90s and this convergence of hip-hop and streetwear and skateboarding and the movie Kids in this time period. And I'm like, oh, I have shoeboxes filled of videotapes of all this. And uh, let's make a deal. If you take the videos and you digitize them all, and you put them in order (laughs) and you label everything so I can have digital versions of them that I can just access. You're free to use whatever you want. And he uh, enthusiastically agreed. Jeremy is uh, a, a different type of a personality than I am. I don't have the patience to sit down and catalog things like that. I don't even catalog a lot of my own work. It's just 
I do it, I put it out, it gets lost. And, you know, sometimes it pops up. It's kind of fun. People, strangers show up with something you made 20 years ago that you've forgotten about. Jeremy's the opposite. He's everything is labeled, everything is organized. So I gave him the videos and he digitized everything and then started doing interviews. And originally I was just another interview. I just sat down and started talking. But I think as he started editing, he saw that a lot of things that were happening were one way or another uh, motivated or connected by me. I was a, a node. You know this word, a node. A node. I was the, the fulcrum <laughs> for a lot of this happening. You also became the narrator of the film, right? The narration in the film is my interview. Interview. So he he edited those into a narration, but it pretty much spans the entire movie. It, oh, it does for sure. It was a, a director's choice from him. At the okay. in early versions of the of the film, I was just like everybody else appearing with the, my little with the Chiron, but people who were producing and other people who were in the film were sort of kind of like, oh, I can't believe I'm in the Eli documentary, you know? And the idea was brought up, oh, why don't we just remove Eli's face and just use the voice? So I'm this disembodied narrator of this story. And I think well, it, we, it worked. <laughs> we miss your face, but... Uh, your voice is is present, and I think it really becomes, you know, the voice of the film. So, what do you think about the, his decision then to make it about eighty seven to ninety seven? What happened in the world at that time that made this an important decade? I really think that a lot of it has to do with hip hop becoming mainstream. Me and my friends were skateboarders, and as you well know, David. The New York City nightlife scene always would embrace skateboarders. We were the cool juvenile delinquent guys, maybe not everywhere, but like, you know, I would, if I had a skateboard and some of my skateboard friends, we were let in. But at the time when we would go out to clubs, it was all house music or something thereof, kind of like dance music. And also, if you're not from New York, you don't know this fact that even though New York is the birthplace of hip hop, New York radio did not embrace hip-hop. The only time you could hear hip-hop on the radio was on Friday and Saturday nights for just like two or three hours. DJ Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out, Mr. Magic's Rap Attack. Besides that, they wouldn't play hip-hop on MTV. They wouldn't play hip-hop in nightclubs. You could go to like one-off parties. And it was so hard to get a hold of the hip-hop that getting the cassette tape and recording the hip-hop show we would have all have two radios and two cassette things to record the battling hip hop shows at the same time. So, you know, you could listen to it, but the basically when I was a teenager, we'd go home, have dinner, workout plans, where you're going to go skate. If you were going to go write graffiti or maybe try to get into a party and then just wait for, you know, DJ red alert to start Mr. Magic crap attack, press record and then leave the house. <laughs> so you'd go out skating you might go to a, a nightclub. You might end up at the old tunnel. And, you know, it's just house music. And that's fine. I love house music. I love it, you know. But the only hip-hop song I remember when uh, the whole Club Kid thing kind of popped off around 1987, 88. During that time, I was going to the tunnel, and it was just house music. Bango, bango, bango. 
that kind of era. But the one hip hop song they play was It Takes Two by Rob Bass and DJ Easy. Rock, rock, rock. And as soon as they would play It Takes Two, the whole place would just go apeshit crazy. And then maybe they would play Girl I'll House You by the Jungle Brothers. And then that was it. That was the two hip hop songs that you would get. And then everyone would just go back to acting calm. Plus, if you did in fact go out to these kind of underground hip hop clubs, there was shootings and violence. They're good old days you're talking about. That's the shit you miss now, right? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I think a lot of things succeed because somebody makes an observation like, why don't they just do this? Like <laughs> Heinz ketchup putting the opening to the bottle on the bottom of the ketchup. So you don't have to shake the ketchup to get the ketchup out. You know, <laughs> why don't they just do this? So that was sort of my, why don't they do this moment was why don't they just play hip hop for this specific audience? Obviously certain people would be into it and it will attract a kind of element. But all of my friends was just basically the crew that would hang out all day in Washington square park, you know, and there were bad elements there but there were no shootouts so after you started uh, zoo york you got involved in the promoting clubs or was this all happening at the same time it sounds like you were doing lots of different things no no the bar graph <laughs> of skateboarding and hip-hop for me was around like uh, i started skating in 1982 and then i was just skateboarding in new york and kind of writing graffiti i i didn't even ever entertained the idea that skateboarding was a career trajectory. And also, graffiti is not a career trajectory. I just knew I could draw pictures. So I kind of always knew I was going to do something in art. But neither of those things were a functioning industry that I could get involved in. So we would just skateboard in the 80s just for the fun of it. That was the whole reason why we did it. We would just skateboard. There's no future. Maybe I'll get a picture in a magazine. That was kind of the highlight of what would happen. I'm not going to make any money doing it. And I'm going to just keep writing graffiti pictures on my skateboard and with my friends, take some tags. That was just done strictly for my personal fun. It wasn't done because I thought, like, I'm going to get rich. Right. So the Tony Hawk and the, the Christian Hasoy Swatch Tour 1980s skateboard boom sort of started fizzling. For me, around 88, 89, everybody who I grew up skateboarding with, who was like my entire grouping of friends, just stopped skateboarding. They were just like, I'm done. It's not cool anymore. They went on to do different things, be adults. I was the jackass who just kept skateboarding. But the happenstance, I guess the one magical moment that allowed me to do all this was my mom getting mad at me because I was going to film school at School of Visual Arts and skateboarding and going out to nightclubs. That was like my entire life. I would just get up, go to school, skateboard, go home, eat, go out to clubs, come back, go to sleep, get up, go to school. And my mom was fronting the bill. Like every, you know, mom, can I borrow 20 bucks? Can I borrow 20 bucks? And she just was finally just like, you're not going out anymore. You have no time. You're going out too much. You're not allowed to go out at night. You need to get a job and you need to pay for all this. So I got really bummed out. The usual, you know, I'm like 18 living with my mom. And, oh man, this sucks. What am I going to do? Trying to figure out some way to 
con the system. And my friend Carter Smith, who you probably know, he called me up and was like, listen, there's this new nightclub opening up called Mars and they need promoters. And for those of you who don't know, at the time, that meant not what a club promoter is today. It meant getting a knapsack filled with postcards for information of different parties and then going out to all the nightclubs in New York City on foot and then walking through the crowd and physically handing out these cards, these passes to get into all these clubs. And he said, I could get $100 a night for doing this. And that's a lot of money for an 18 year old in 1989. So I started doing it with him. So we got the hundred bucks, we got all the passes and whatever money we didn't spend on cabs or getting into clubs, we got to keep. So I would just like skateboard around with him. We'd get into clubs so we didn't have to pay for taxis. And by the end of a couple of months, we knew all the doormen, everyone would just let us in. All the bouncers knew us. Everybody loved us. And we were just like stoked that I somehow got to continue my little, you know, juvenile fantasy world of going out to clubs, skateboarding, and going to film school. And after having success at this, just like continually doing it, I started bringing around uh, my friend Beasley, Dominie Beasley, who was a black skateboard graffiti writer just like me. And he lived in the housing projects behind Lincoln Center. He lived in those projects and we would meet up and go write graffiti and skateboard all the time. Me and him were like a, a little dynamic duo. So he started coming with me to the parties and the owner of the nightclub, uh, Yuki, and then also the head promoter of the club, who is Rudolph. Rudolph is like an amazing, important figure in New York City nightlife. I think he was the guy behind Danceteria. So that was the first club I ever went to. And I was like, I want to be part of this. You know, they had sort of like the basement of Mars after about the first couple of months. There was nothing really going on there. They just had uh, music playing, like pre-recorded cassettes of DJ sets. And I guess people who were exhausted, this is pre-bottle uh, service and booths where they encourage you to sit down. <laughs> the old clubs, there was nowhere to sit down. You just had to stand the entire time. So people would just congregate in the basement, smoke cigarettes, and sit around doing nothing. So I think they wanted to see if they could utilize this space into something more exciting. I would see Rudolph and I would see Yuki occasionally walking through Washington Square Park and they would see me skateboarding and be like, oh, this is cool. This is where all the teenagers hang out. I'm like, yeah, this is our little area here. And all the pretty girls were there and they would all sit around smoking and all the skaters and graffiti writers and the like hoodlums. It was the Rastas, the punk rock guys. It was a really cool mix. The pot dealers. The pot dealers. But were they really dealing pot? <laughs> <laughs> Oregano. Oregano. So that was how I pitched the idea to them. Wasn't, I'm going to make a hip hop party. It was, I'm making a party for everybody in Washington Square Park. Oh, so, that, so you just approached them in the park and started talking about it? The simple fact of it was that at the time, I had a, a little bit of like a, a reputation, you know. So I had this guest list, and I had people who would come to my parties uh, as a promoter. So, yeah, as a promoter, right? So I had a little bit of weight, and I was, you know, can you do something interesting in the basement? 
of course I can. I'm going to invite all my friends and you like them all. We're going to make a party tailored to them. And your friends were into hip hop and they were into skating. Yes, but they didn't know that at the time. Right. They didn't know that they were going to get a hip hop party that would attract all the new rappers, Jay-Z and Naz yeah. and whoever. Well, right? that comes well a eventually later. it would, would yeah. happen. And it the turned into the first real hip hop downtown party. Exactly. The block would get closed down. I mean, it was even known generally that it was like a scary place, as you had described earlier, that shit happened, guns would pop and things like that. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't start okay. like that. No, it didn't know? start like that. I'm just saying no, no, it, it just we, went that way. It never starts that way. <laughs> of course not. Uh, <laughs> everything gets to a certain point and then it breeds something else. But, you know, Duke of Denmark, the DJ Duke of Denmark, he was a famous house DJ and he would, I knew him because he worked at the club. But then when I got to know him, I was like, how do you get the name Duke of Denmark? And he was like, oh, I'm like a world champion uh, breakdancer from Denmark. Because <laughs> he had an accent. He was like Eastern Bloc guy. But I was like, oh, so you like hip hop, not just house music. He was like, no, no, I love, I can DJ hip hop. And he started DJing, like beat juggling and scratching. He was amazing. Even to this day, he's probably one of the best beat jugglers who ever existed. So we went to him and we were like, listen, we're going to do the party in the basement and play hip hop. And he was like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm on it. I think we even worked out a, a, a scam where if one of the bosses came down, we would put a house record on oh, and then really? wait for them to leave and then put the hip hop back on. You'd have like, a, yeah, mom's coming. <laughs> exactly. We had like a, we had like a go to record right there, <laughs> right, right, like a house record. So we were doing these little parties and it was all the kids from Washington Square Park and it was our little clubhouse. And Beasley one day found a microphone in the copy room, like a, a sure microphone, like a crappy one. And he was like, we're going to rap. <laughs> Me and you, we'll go downstairs and rap for everybody. I was like, I'm not rapping for anybody. So he took the microphone downstairs, plugged it in and started just rapping but it was not even rapping. He was just like calling people out and making jokes. And it was super juvenile, something that any high school kid would have done at a party. And as we're doing it, this heavy set, smooth black guy with a cocktail who's like, looks like he's in his 30s, walks up and is like, hey, can I get on the mic? And we were like, no, nah, man, come on. He just sat there like waiting for his turn. And then finally, he was like, come on, let me have the microphone. And we were like, okay. And he was like, it's the almighty KG, Cold Crush Brothers, Bronx representing. And we were like, oh my God, it's KG from the Cold Crush Brothers. And that was it. As soon as he was on there for one minute, we just gave him the microphone and Duke lost his mind. Duke was like, I'm DJing with like one of the actual Cold Crush Brothers. And it just changed the whole dynamic that one night. And when the night was over, we were like, "Come, you want to come back? He was like, sure, can I get free drinks? And we're like, we'll give you all the drinks you want. Just come back. He was like, I'll see you next Friday. And that's how it suddenly just snowballed into this thing. Like the word of mouth got around. In the basement at Mars, there's an actual MC and there's a DJ and it's a hip-hop party at a real club. And on top of that, you're free to go walk through the rest of the club. You're not just stuck in a sweaty hip-hop party at Irving Plaza all night. You know, you can go up to the house music floor. That's really what started it off. You mentioned kids and Washington Square Park, yeah. which makes me think of kids and Washington mm. Square Park, the movie yeah. with yeah. Larry Clark that also changed 
everything, right? Yes. Where were you in those days? We did. Did you like what was happening? It's, it's, it's kids is a is a strange thing for all of us who were involved with it because what you were saying earlier about how did you know to put hip hop with uh, skateboarding in New York? I didn't know that. I just that was just what I did. You know, that was my thing. And kids was sort of the same deal. You know, at the time me and Harmony Kareen were hanging out a lot because we were sort of older skateboarders, not really like skating every single day, all day. We would skate once in a while, but we were older and we were into film. And Harmony was much more into, I would say, highbrow, high-lowbrow kind of art and was super knowledgeable about galleries and photographers and more obscure cinema than I was into. My kind of leanings were more towards 1980s horror movies and Mad Max and Godzilla, that kind of stuff. And he was kind of more into Gus Van Sant and people like that. So around this time, we were just starting Zoo York. So Zoo York was starting to get some kind of traction. At this point, it's a few years after my whole nightclub thing. I'd given up on the nightclub thing and and started Fat Farm with Russell Simmons. And that led to me starting Zoo York with Rodney and Adam. So Zoo's starting. I've got a little video camera. I'm like the only guy with a video camera kind of shooting all the early Zoo York video stuff. Also, sidebar, I'm also shooting all the Stretch Armstrong and Bobito stuff with the same video camera. And I start noticing this clearly older gentleman dressed like a raver with oversized clothes, but with a mustache and a gray ponytail. And he's running after these little skaters and taking pictures. And immediately I was just like, there's, you know, pedophile alert. Like there's something wrong with this guy. And I didn't engage him, didn't talk to him. I just kept my eyes peeled to make sure he wasn't scooting kids off to the side because that's what it seemed like. I didn't know it was Larry Clark. I didn't know he was a famous photographer and I had no idea of the history of what he was doing. Then around the same time, Harmony comes up to me in Washington Square Park one day with this big ass book. And he's like, check this out. It's Tulsa. And I was like, what's this? He's like, it's my favorite book. I met the photographer. His name's Larry Clark. He's amazing. I start looking through these pictures and they're just beautiful, shocking you know, and you can see the influence that he had on Gus Van Zandt and so much more art. And also just like what a crazy life this guy has led. And as soon as Harmony explained to me who he was, I was like, oh, the, the creepy old pedophile guy is actually Larry Clark. And he's this like sincere, beautiful, artistic photographer. So that sort of changed my perspective on all of that. And then I got to know Larry and I was like, okay, it's, it's, we, we, all hung out and it was much cooler. We knew who this guy was. We were his new subjects. He's just into this scene. And he knew that I was a little bit older than everybody. And he explained his life to me and going to prison and how he would drift between different fringe youth cultures. In the 80s, he was documenting gay street hustlers on 42nd Street during the crack epidemic and things like that. We were the new fringe juveniles and then one day harmony running down the street guess what what gus van zandt's gonna let larry make a movie about skateboarding and i'm gonna write it you know and we're like oh cool how much for a million dollars 
and everyone's going to be in the film. It just seemed like it was going to be a lark, you know? I mean, this is a, a well-respected artist, but also Harmony's never written a script. None of us are actors. None of the skaters are actors. This is Larry's first film, and the idea gets made. Harmony goes and writes the whole screenplay in one sitting, and everything just kind of moves along. We shoot the film, and because Zoo York just started, and we had all of the skaters in New York City skating for us, they just all migrated into this movie, you know? So it kind of ends up being this huge Zoo York commercial, you know? The skateboard that they beat the kid up with, we had to go pick a, a, a skateboard to make this the stunt double foam skateboard. This is Zoo York skateboard. All the kids are wearing Zoo York clothes. So um, it was just, that's kind of what Jeremy's documentary is about, is like, oh, how did all of this happen? The thing that's fascinating about it is it's not a battle plan. No one sat down to say, we're going to go and open up Supreme. We're going to go and make Zoo York. And we're going to go and make Stretch Armstrong and Bobito show. And we're going to go make kids. And all of this is going to make us all wealthy and create this whole culture. That's not what happened. It's really just a bunch of people who just happen to all hang out and have different interests. And for whatever reason, it, it exploded into something else. Let's talk about that, about what happens when it does turn into all those things that you never really planned on it turning into when yeah. Zoo York is is actually a force and it becomes a big brand. You go through certain decisions along the way. You wind up losing ownership of it or giving up ownership at some point. Now you have I gave, ownership. I gave up ownership of it. Okay, <laughs> you gave up ownership. Now you have it back. So, well, actually, no, we don't. Me and my partners don't own Zoo York, uh, another company who's a giant publicly traded licensor. Iconics. Iconics. They have Joe Boxer and other brands. They're the ones who own it. We're just sitting there trying to help them manage where the brand is now. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's a little bit different. But anyway, let's just go back because I know there were some moments as a businessman, you sort of had to become one whether you wanted to (laughs) or not. Businessman. It's true. Yeah. There were some moments where there were some decisions that you had to make about the future of the company where you had some options with uh, Nigo from Bathing Ape, who was interested in maybe doing something with you guys, or you could have gone Supreme, or you could have gone bigger, a more mass market, and you decided to go more mass. Yeah, uh, that's 100% true. I think as a case study, Zoo is very interestingly placed, because at a certain point, there was Zoo York and there was Supreme, and we were kind of equally as large. We, Zoo might have even been a little bit bigger because there was just the one Supreme store. And you were distributed at that time all over. Oh, yeah. We were a global brand. This is also before the internet. This is also before the idea of a Supreme actually s- seems to work as a viable business model. You know, The only thing before Supreme was Stussy. They had a couple of shops, but then Stussy also was available in Bloomingdale's and also available at skate shops. The like super exclusivity idea of what Supreme is and all of the companies that it spawned after that, that didn't happen. 
I, I think Nigo was doing Bathing Ape, and there was a couple other companies in Japan, like Neighborhood, who were doing stuff like this and trying to be very, you know, approaching it more of a entire super well controlled identity. That was the the point of it. Zoo, you know, we're a skateboard company. First of all, a lot of what we did throughout the entirety of the beginning of Zoo York was to promote the skateboarders. All the ads aren't about clothes. Our ads aren't using Ghostface Killer and Kate Moss to promote the clothes. We're using our skaters in New York City to promote the brand. And we want to make money so that we can support all of the skaters so that they all get paid. We could send them out on tours. They could get more footage and thereby propagate this idea of what Zoo York is. And the idea of trying to open up stores and control the stores almost seemed like a, just another headache to do to deal with. And on top of that, at that time, everybody shopped in all these stores. Everybody went to Macy's. Everybody went to Bloomingdale's. So, in fact, if you had Bloomingdale's or Fred Siegel calling you up, we want to carry your stuff. That was like, you, we did it. That was like, you, you made it, you know? So as soon as that happened, that was like, oh, this is great. Now we can just design what we want in-house and ship it to all these cool stores that everyone goes to and we'll just collect the checks. And that, by the way, is the successful business model for owning a clothing brand up until Supreme. That's what everybody does. You know, of course there's the polo mansion, but you can get polo everywhere else in the world, you know? So that was the case study where Zoo was like, okay, we're going to go mass market. We're going to make a whole lot of stuff and just flood the market with it. And let's see how that works as opposed to James, Jebbia and Supreme, which was much more tailored, bespoke, controlled and uh, refined business model. And uh, as you know, James goes all the way back to the parachute back in the, the uh, 1980s, selling very expensive Yoji Yamamoto suits and everything is in black. And we're, you're coming into the space and the space is also an experience. And then he goes on to do Union and Union's got the raver vibe and the Stussy stuff. And still we're controlling the space. It's about the space and how we're selling these items to people. We didn't have a store. We were in a warehouse. We were putting out media and propaganda to try and hype everybody up to run to Bloomingdale's to get the stuff, you know? So I think the Supreme model is more of a practically engineered, immersive experience, whereas what we were doing at Zoo was more of a psyops, a psychological operation to create media and, and promote ideas through magazines and videos that would resonate in people's minds. And then when they walked into Bloomingdale's and they saw the Zoo York sign, they were like, oh, I'm buying this, you know? It's funny how everything changed now. Well, I know. And it's almost flipped back to your concept because stores are, are dead and people are, don't yeah. want to. A lot of new companies are only selling online. You don't need the stores in the same way that people were it's using them for. But also, I want to you know follow that trajectory. So Zoo York is doing really well, attracting interest from potential investors, right? And then mm -hmm. you made this deal with Echo. 
what yeah, happened? I mean, uh, oh, yeah, they so, were bought uh, by Iconics or some, some yeah, well, kind of thing ahead. like that, you're right? You're jumping ahead okay. years and years. Give it, I, give I, it to I, me. I got out of there at a certain <laughs> point. But, you know, the other thing for me personally is that, like, as I said in the beginning, when I was skateboarding and writing graffiti, that was not a career choice. That wasn't like something I, w- I was planning on my life to be doing when that I was got lifestyle. older. It was for fun. Other people besides my little group of friends saw the value in what we were doing. But at that time, I just wanted to go and make film, film and television and tell stories. In fact, you know, Zoo York in a very real way is a, a story or presenting a kind of idea. That was always what I wanted to do. So what happened was after kids came out, we were like kind of killing it in the skateboard industry. At the time, World Industries was sort of like uh, the biggest skateboard company. And they were basically catering to 13-year-old kids who were coming in skateboarding and making graphics for young boys who were coming in and selling tons and tons and tons of these skateboards. We were making more sophisticated uh, concept, high concept, kind of more adult stuff. And we attracted uh, late teen, college-age kids, basically. 20-year-olds, early 20-year-olds who skateboarded knew that Zoo was cool and was not a wet willy cartoon skateboard. So even though World Industries was selling thousands and thousands of skateboards, they were selling one skateboard to a 13-year-old who would skateboard and then put it in his closet. We had return customers. We had kids who were skateboarding every single day while they were going to college, while they were working their first jobs. And they would skate, 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 break the board, back to the skate shop, get another Zoo York board. As far as a skateboard company goes, that's exactly what you want. And because the core skaters were so attracted to that, that started having, having spillover to where people who couldn't skateboard just wanted to get the shirt or get the, the hoodie, you know? And um, we would look at our sales, what we were doing, and we had our own wood mill. So our skateboards were different than everyone else's, which could have been a, a positive thing. But we were working with the wood mill, Chapman Skateboards, shout out to Greg Chapman, that we couldn't make enough skateboards. Because we were on the East Coast trying to figure out, how do we make more skateboards? Meanwhile, we're just blowing through clothes. So we all had a big meeting one day, and we're like, well, what do we want to do? If we want to make more money and expand the company, we either have to make a distribution company, which is what all successful skateboard companies did, meaning that you have your one skateboard company, World Industries, and it does go- it does good. So you basically make s- other companies so that you can have a warehouse with 10 skateboard brands. And you start bumping out more skateboard brands and more wheel brands. But we were already having trouble making our own skateboards. <laughs> and so we were like, look, let's just go into clothes because I have a history with Fat Farm. I know this industry a little bit. We'll go into that. And then we started making clothes and the clothes were selling out. And we started having serious interest from investors. So we had a lot of people coming and throwing millions and millions of dollars for mezzanine tier financing to continue on (laughs) developing New York. (laughs) But the guys from Echo, who we knew, but were kind of more hip hop, they were clearly having a huge effect on the marketplace going into the clothing industry. So when we met with them, uh, the sell to us or why we were attracted to them was the infrastructure. 
They had factories already set up in Hong Kong, in China. They had an entire production office in Hong Kong. They knew trade tariffs. They knew shipping costs. They had hubs internationally. And we didn't know that. We're just dumb skaters. So for us to try and join with Echo was because if we're going to go and try and push into the clothing market, these are the guys to do it with specifically because of the international infrastructure and support that they had for it. We're running out of time, but I just want to get in the Ashton Kutcher story, which I think sort of (laughs) summarizes what happened. Yeah. I'm sure everyone's going to remember this differently, but from my perspective, so, you know, Ashton Kutcher at the time is coming off of the success of that 70s show and then also has punked on MTV, which is huge, you know? And, uh, Johnny Boy, John Abrahams, shout out to John Abrahams, also his dad, Marty Abrahams. Uh, Johnny is one of the kids in Kids. That's how I got to know him. He's the, uh, the handsome one in Kids. <laughs> and he went on to have an actual film career. And he went off to Hollywood and was like in movies and like actually became a real actor and befriended all these Hollywood stars. One of them happened to be Ashton Kutcher. So... I started hanging out with Ashton Kutcher and Johnny Boy a lot in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that was all fine and good. He's a great guy, super smart. And once we got to Echo, they kind of wanted to... uh, This is such a stupid story you've heard a million times, right? For every rock band. We need to go more mainstream. You know, we're like, no, keep it core skateboarding, core skateboarding. Somehow... Uh, they find out that I'm friends with Ashton Kutcher. So the guys at Echo were like, listen, Ashton Kutcher is huge and valuable and we want him, can get us in touch. We'll pay him, excuse me, he'll be our new spokesperson for Zoo. And I'm like, no, we are a core skateboarding company. It's all about skateboarding and we're going to use skateboarders. Maybe we'll use a hip hop performer, but Ashton Kutcher is not, Zoo York. It doesn't have anything to do with the brand. And this was a a big source of contention between the guys running Echo and me personally, because it was my personal relationship, you know? And then I decide to go on a vacation to go surfing and I fly down to Panama for like a month. And then I've come back and I'm just kind of immediately inundated with, uh, we signed Ashton Kutcher. He's, he's going to be the new Zoo York spokesperson for a million dollars for one year. He's going to be the face of City York. And I'm like, the deal's done. And oh my God, I can't believe this. They must have gone to his agents and made this deal happen. So in my mind, I'm trying to rationalize how we can put Ashton with Zoo. And I'm like, all right, I guess punked is a little bit like jackass. <laughs> That's kind of like boy juvenile shit. Like maybe we'll just go on that angle, you know? And uh, finally the day comes and we're shooting the the ads and I go to the photo shoot. And he's there with Demi Moore and like, we're, you know, oh, Eli, so good, you know, thank you so much. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I don't want to get into the whole like, nah, man, I didn't want you to do this. I'm just, you know, because he's my boy. So I'm just like, yeah, so this will be great. And we finally have some downtime and Ashton's like, yeah, the guys at Echo, you know, told me how you were, uh, you know, embarrassed to ask me. And I was like, what? 
And he was like, yeah, the guys at Echo called me up and they said that you really wanted me to do this, but like you felt weird because we're friends and that they were asking behind your back for me to do this for you. And I was like, oh, really? Like, that's it for me, man. Like, I'm out of here. That was kind of like my my like moment of a wake-up call of like, I need to go out and just do other things because this is not what I signed up for. And also, Zoo was working just fine without me. We had other designers doing stuff. I wasn't controlling everything. And it was a Frankenstein that I built. And it was off and running, you know, through the village with a torch burning things down. Wow. The life and times of Eli Morgan Gessner. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see what you got cooking coming Mm. up. Yes. Well, I've learned the hard lesson, which is not to talk about that stuff because half the time it doesn't happen. (laughs) But I'm definitely working on new stuff. Yeah. I'm sure. Unfortunately, you know, you have so much to talk about already. My God, I have only scratched the surface of my question. So maybe we'll have to do a part two. I'm always, always ready to talk to you, David. Okay, man. Thank you so much. Of course, old friend. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.